All right, good morning, Grace Orange. Please open your Bible to Acts chapter 8. When you find that, please stand with me to read God's Word. Acts chapter 8 tells how persecution scattered the gospel beyond Jerusalem. Enemies were trying to destroy the church, but all it did was increase the number of believers. Today we're going to see how Jesus allows his church to be persecuted so that more people hear the gospel. Let's read God's word. I'll begin at Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and go to verse 25. And Saul approved of his execution. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison now those who were scattered went about preaching the word Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, giving this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is God's word. 
Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have spoken and that your word stands forever and that it is perfect and that you use your word by your spirit to change our hearts. I pray for anyone here today that is not a believer that they would be drawn by your mercy and grace to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. I pray, Lord, for believers here that we would, that we would see amazing things in your word, that you would open our eyes and that we would see wonderful things in your word for your glory. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So Jesus allows his church to be persecuted so that the gospel goes to more people. Now it looks at this point as if the church had overstayed its welcome in Jerusalem. The death of Stephen was the last thing the church wanted to see. But sometimes that unwelcome thing in your life is the very thing that God wants to use in your life to bring about great growth. That's what happened with the first church. They had experienced explosive growth. They had encountered significant opposition and it had now culminated in in one of their own being murdered in cold blood. So things are looking bleak. But God was planning to use it to grow the church into her mission. The headline would have read like this. Stephen killed, Saul on a rampage, and they were all scattered. On January 30th, 1956, Life magazine reported the deaths of five young men. Jim Elliott, Ed McCauley, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, and Nate Saint. Killed by the very South American natives they had committed their lives to reach for Christ. Here's the headline in Life magazine on that day. Go ye and preach the gospel, five do and die. I've actually got an original copy of that magazine. It tells the story of these missionaries who had gone down to reach the Aka Indians and had been killed by them. Now, it seemed a waste of five young lives to a lot of people. But God has a way of sovereignly multiplying the efforts of his chosen servants, his witnesses, and causing the gospel to triumph even in the face of seeming defeat. And this is where the church was at. In in the face of seeming defeat, and the truth that we see is that Jesus allows his church to be persecuted. And it's painful and it's unsettling and it's shocking, but the result is that the gospel goes out to more and more people. Praise God. The gospel makes progress through persecution. Scattering the church scatters the gospel to more people in need of the transforming work of Christ in their life. So it's good. But you follow the first church in Acts and it's like tracking a wounded deer in the forest. Follow the blood tracks. Follow the footsteps of the first martyr, Stephen, and his blood leads to huge gospel progress. Moving out from Jerusalem, which was really the epicenter, out into Judea and Samaria. The church's first missionary effort begins right here in Acts chapter 8. Now it was mandated by Jesus in Acts chapter 1. He said they would receive power 
The Holy Spirit would come upon them. They would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. It was foreshadowed in chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, God orchestrates this massive ingathering of people from far and wide. Chapter 5, people from the surrounding cities and and villages bring their their sick to be healed. They're from all over. Chapter 6, Stephen preaches to Jews from foreign lands. But it was all jump-started in Acts chapter 7. Stephen's death, that's the first domino to fall, triggering this chain reaction of fierce persecution that really thrust the gospel out to the hated Samaritans and beyond. Now up to this point, Jerusalem had been the epicenter of their gospel work. Now the gospel explodes outward. Romans 1.16 tells us the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The Jew first, then to the Greek. Scattering the church scatters the gospel to more people. Now what you see in this passage, we first see persecution that leads to gospel preaching. And there's real believers that are getting saved and then some pretenders. Simon the magician is one. Now that's the outline really. First, you've got the persecuted church, verses one through three. Second, the preaching evangelist, verses four through eight. And third, the pretending magician, verses nine to 24, nine to 25. Saul persecutes the church. Philip preaches the gospel, and Simon the sorcerer is exposed as a fraud, as an imposter. Now in Acts chapter 6, we see God filling Stephen with grace and power to fulfill his purposes. In Acts chapter 7, the whole chapter, Stephen is defending the gospel, and he loses his life for it. We see that God is glorified through his witnesses who faithfully carry his word wherever he sends them but as we all know israel had a really bad habit of rejecting god sent deliverers last week brian zuniga took us on a really good deeper dive into god's deliverance of his people through moses that that stephen was talking about how god reveals himself so that we would trust him as deliverer now stephen is persuasively showing of Israel's checkered past. It's littered with the debris of hard-hearted rejection of every deliverer God ever sent. Stephen preached the word. He had this grasp of the Bible and, and saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God and they kill him on the spot. Now, in the, ma- in the aftermath, you'd, you'd think maybe they'll repent of killing this deliverer, this, this messenger, uh, but they hatch more evil. They hatch more evil. Persecution begins with Saul. He is ravaging the church. And what happens? The church grows. Verse 1 tells us Saul approved of Stephen's execution. He was in hearty agreement with it. Now, it's really easy to think of Saul and say, well, yeah, he was this junior, this future Sanhedrin member. You know, he's not yet ready to be in the group, but he's off to the side saying, thumbs up, I'm good with this one, as if they really even cared what he thought. But what it tells us, and it's really embedded in the text, that really Saul was behind Stephen's murder. Saul instigated it. He was 
He was in hearty approval. He agreed to it. He approved of it. He actually had pleasure in Stephen's death. Well, it describes the condition of his heart as not a momentary excitement like, hey, they're all going to kill Stephen. You know, I'm good with that. He had a mindset beyond the moment. He had a mindset of murder that was ongoing. So he really, really wanted Stephen to die. Now, if you go back into chapter 7, verse 58, it says, The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And again, it would be very easy to say, yeah, sure, he's the, he's the, 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 the butler. You know, he's, he's holding their coats. He's junior. He's not in charge of anything. But the, the culture was such that if you laid your your coats at someone's feet you were saying this is the authoritative leader we're looking to he was the authoritative authoritative instigator of stephen's death he called for it called for it and it was inspired by satan satan inspires total disregard for human life it shows us the depths of human depravity the abortion industry is built on that Total disregard for human life. What happens to Stephen is outright murder, and it was Saul's idea. He was blinded by furious wrath against Christ and his church. And what does that do? It detonates a huge persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they're all scattered. They're running for their lives, and they're scattered through Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Now, all of them being scattered doesn't mean that every individual Christian except the apostles was scattered. The Jerusalem church continued to exist as the center. You look on in Acts chapter 9 and 11 and 15 and 21, and the church is there as as really the center. But what it means is the church, them being scattered, it means the church was broken up. It was split apart. It was dispersed. A lot of members had to flee. Stephen dies. God's enemies pounce. They pile on. And here is the church, bruised and broken and bloodied. It's not looking good. Like marbles on the floor, they scatter in all directions. But the apostles, they stay with the ship. They're faithful shepherds. They don't abandon their post. They stay with the church in Jerusalem. But there's a lot that are fleeing. Verse 2 tells us what happens next. Stephen gets buried and people mourn his death, which you think that's normal, right? But in those days, the rule was if you were sentenced to death by stoning, no one could publicly mourn your death. It wasn't allowed. But here, and this should encourage your hearts, it's very easy to think, you know, I live in a godless culture and I'm a Christian, but everyone's against me. Not so. There were God-fearing Jews who mourned Stephen. Devout men indicates they were God-fearing Jews, not the church, but actually Jews who didn't agree with Stephen being murdered. There are God-fearing folks with a sense of right and wrong, with a tender conscience, who have not yet come to faith in Christ, and in this situation, probably among those saved by Philip, under Philip's preaching. Verse 3 tells us that Saul is on the rampage. He is ravaging the church. What is he doing? He's entering house after house. 
He's dragging off men and women. He has no respect for men or women. At this point in his life, he doesn't care. He thinks he's doing the right thing, and he is doing Satan's work, and he is throwing them in prison. Ravaging is a key word here. To ravage means to ruin something. You wreak havoc. It's mayhem. Just devastation. It's used of inflicting physical harm on someone. You do not care about their well-being, and you don't care what happens to them. It's a word used of destroying a city. It's a word used picturing a wild beast tearing your body apart, mangling you. And this is not a one-time thing either. This is not, hey, I'm going to do this today as a little hobby. He was doing this as a continuous action of his life. He barges in and he drags people out of their homes. Saul is doing home invasions. Saul is a terrorist. He is terrorizing the church. He's a terrorist. He tears up the church. And the church gets scattered. Had to be painful. Had to be terrifying. But, and we see this over and over again in Scripture, God causes the wrath of man to praise him. God causes the wrath of man to praise him. The church is scattered, but it is scattered to the very places Jesus told them to go with the gospel. It is part of his sovereign plan. I'm not sure if you had a moment where you can actually receive this, but the hard thing in your life right now that you wouldn't choose is a part of God's sovereign plan. And he wants to use that. If you're a believer, he wants to use that in your life for the gospel to go to more people. However disconnected that might seem to the gospel. What does the church do? What does the church do? They speak the word and people get saved. Verse 4 tells us those who were scattered went preaching. They went preaching the word. These are normal, everyday believers being scattered out into places they really didn't want to go. And they preached the word. Philip carries the word to Samaria and he's unafraid. Here you have dispersed Christians doing good to the depraved multitudes by declaring the gospel of deliverance through Jesus Christ. It's what every Christian should do. Everywhere God sends you. The word preaching in verse 4 is, is a great word for us. It's the, it's the Greek word euangelizo. It mean, it's where we get our word for evangelism. They were evangelizing. They were going from person to person sharing the gospel. Here was Saul going from house to house, dragging people out of their homes that are believers, throwing them in jail, and here these scattered believers are going from person to person preaching the gospel. They evangelize. And verse 5 tells us that Philip goes down to the city of Samaria and proclaims Christ. Philip, the first missionary of the church, one of the seven servants, not the apostle, and he is pointing people in Samaria to Jesus. Samaria 
is a, is a first century no-fly zone for Jews. You don't go there if you're a Jew. You would go far out of your way so as not to have to go there and intermingle with Samaritans. He went down to the city of Samaria, significant because it was 40 miles north of the high plateau of Jerusalem. And Samaria was the former capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, founded by Omri, 1 Kings 16 tells us. And there was bad blood, long-standing bad blood between the Jews and Samaritans for centuries. The distance between them got even bigger when the Samaritans built a rival temple on their hill, the sacred hill of Gerizim. In fact, um, in John chapter 4, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, she even says, our fathers say that we should worship here, you say we should worship there. You know, who's right? So the Jews regarded Samaritans as racial and religious half-breeds. They were hated enemies. They were a mix of Jew and Gentile. They had this competing worship system that mirrored that of Jerusalem. How did they get here? They got there because uh, Assyrian settlers were deported to the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, to Samaria about the time of the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. And before long, these settlers abandoned their pagan rituals and became pretty much indistinguishable from the Israelites that they lived amongst. But the Jews continued to perpetuate this hatred. They they used the alien origin of Samaritans as reason to refuse to have any dealings with them. That's why when you read in the Gospels, it says Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. But here's where they had something in common. The Samaritans shared the Jews' hope of a coming Messiah. They were looking forward and thinking of him in terms of a Moses-like prophet, which Deuteronomy 18.15 tells us. They saw him as a restorer, a deliverer. Well, Philip evangelized these Samaritans. Now, Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 5, do the work of an evangelist. So believers, even if you don't have the gift of you know, evangelism, you're to, to share the gospel with people who don't know Christ. That's, that's your life. But Philip is the only person in the whole Bible that has the title evangelist you see it in chapter 21 verse 8 in acts philip the evangelist what a great title and so philip the evangelist proclaims christ that word for proclaim is keruso it literally means to proclaim publicly he was not going to some back alley there in samaria and saying hey um if anybody's around him kind of might want to tell you something that's important to me He is proclaiming it loudly. He's proclaiming the news. He is announcing news as a herald. And he's telling them about Jesus, how Jesus came to earth to die for sin and rise from the dead victorious and that all who trust in the finished work of Christ at the cross for salvation receive forgiveness of sins and receive assurance of salvation in Christ, eternal life. So what's happening? God is preparing hearts because verse six tells us the crowds were listening. They're paying attention. They, they, they see what Philip is doing. There's signs going on, miraculous signs that God is giving to, to confirm the gospel message. And they're hearing Philip preach the gospel. Verse 7 tells us that people that were demon-possessed were getting freed from this 
possession. Unclean spirits came out of many who had them. If, if, they, if you were lame or paralyzed, you were getting healed right then. You look in the Gospels and Jesus healed a lot of demon-possessed people. So in spite of Satan's opposition here in this setting, Jesus is still healing demon-possessed people by the gospel. He's doing it today. And people were listening, and they were seeing these powerful signs that the Spirit was doing to authenticate the Word of God, these you know, spectacular events that were designed to point people to God and prove that Philip was God's messenger. And the people received the word gladly, so much so that verse 8 tells us there was a lot of joy in the city. When someone comes to faith in Christ, there's joy amongst believers. There's joy in the hearts of those who get saved. The gospel is good news of great joy for all the people, as the angels told the shepherd. And so Jesus allowing his church to be persecuted so the gospel can go to more people is a very painful and good thing. But then we come to a very curious case in verses 9 through 25 of Simon, the magician. And he's pretending to be a Christian. The gospel's progressing and and mixed in with real believers are fakes. Now next week we're going to see a real believer, the Ethiopian eunuch. But here we see the false faith of Simon the imposter. Verse 9 tells us that he had amazed people for a long time with his magic he was saying that he was someone great so he is proclaiming that he's great he must have had some kind of you know uh insecurity complex or something because he had to go around saying i'm great i'm great but the thing is verse 10 tells us they're all listening they're all paying attention and they're saying yeah you are great we love you you're awesome you're great you're the power of god Verse 11 tells us this is going on for a long time. It's going on for a long time. You know how people get led astray by, by well, falsehood and, and they just get sucked into it and they just, 20 years later, they realize I've been believing this stuff for a long, long time. But I don't want you to get the wrong impression about Simon. That maybe he was just like, you know, doing card tricks and illusions at grad nights and birthday parties and bar mitzvahs. He's not juggling and doing card tricks, people. He's not doing stunts for money. He is not harmless. He was a satanically influenced sorcerer. A first century voodoo witch doctor. He's calling on evil spirits. And by the way, he was one of many in this time. Many wizards in the time of widespread expectation of a great deliverer of the Messiah. And people are reaching for anything. And a lot of misguided messianic hopes swirling around and it led many people to cling to lies i hope you haven't clung to some lies a lot of people were were getting led led astray by this so-called great power of god now if you take a a nickname or a title like the great power of god you got to be pretty arrogant right I, i don't know it just reminds me of pro athletes the nicknames they get and sometimes give themselves. Beast Mode. Megatron. The Answer. Superman. King James. All rooted in pride. Except for the brow. That's humble. The brow is humble. You don't give yourself that name. Check it out. 
But this went beyond a nickname. They are saying that Simon, when they're calling him the great power of God, which is great, they're saying he is God incarnate. That he is the incarnate power of God. Now, now that is only reserved for Jesus. But they are worshiping Simon. They even had a statue in those days inscribed, Simon, the power of God. And Jesus is about to do something that I hope he's done in your life. Jesus frees those bound in sin. Jesus Jesus frees those who are slaves to sin because verse 12 tells us they believe. They believe the gospel. And, and they're baptized. They, they, they profess their faith in Christ. Men and women. And then verse 13, it, it's the most confusing part of this passage because the same word believes is used and it's, it's used in a different way. It says that even Simon believed and got baptized and hung out with the group and weeded his way in and said yeah I'm a believer and yeah I'll go into the water now Simon was very impressed with Philip it's like the magicians of Egypt he recognized the messenger of the one true God who had power that he did not have he saw signs and great miracles performed he was amazed the one who had amazed many was amazed himself at the gospel. But he was amazed, actually, at the signs and the great miracles performed. And Jesus said in John 2, 23, there is little value in faith in miracles alone. So when these new believers get baptized, Simon gets baptized and stays with the group. He, he, he slipped in undetected. And now at this point in the passage, you get to verse 14, and it's, it goes, splits to another scene. It's like, meanwhile, back at the ranch in Jerusalem, the apostles hear that Samaria received the word of God. So what do they do? They send Peter and John, two apostles. John, who once wanted to call down Elijah-like fire from heaven on Samaritans for being rude to Jesus. And now he goes with a very different attitude. He's going with Peter to Samaria to give confirmation of the gospel. God opened his eyes. His, he was growing in Christ and he realized Jesus died for people of every tribe and nation and language. So verse 15 tells us they went down there to pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit and they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. That's it. And verse 17 says they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now why the delay of the spirit indwelling these Samaritan believers. I don't want you to be confused about this. If you're a believer, I don't want you to think that when do I get the Holy Spirit? The delay of the spirit indwelling the Samaritans is to preserve the unity of the church. It was to prove that Samaritan believers are a full part of the church along with these Jewish believers. They're in the same body as these fellow believers. And what it was preventing was having two disconnected churches, like having a civil war in the early church. Ah, the Samaritans, they didn't really become Christians. They're faking it. They bring 
They send two apostles to preserve the unity of the newborn church, to tell them, to show them that God wanted them to know that Jews and Samaritans have the same spirit, the same Holy Spirit. They worship together in Christ. They are one in Christ, as Galatians 3.28 tells us. In Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. This was the Samaritan Pentecost. A similar thing happened in chapter 10 when the Gentiles were brought into the church. These are transitional things happening. They, they don't keep happening through the history of the church. So don't be confused if you're a believer. When you came to faith in Christ, you were immediately indwelt with the Holy Spirit forever. Now, verse 18 is, is key. Simon sees something. He's observing. You notice he didn't get the Holy Spirit. All these other people get the Holy Spirit. He sees the Spirit is given by laying on the apostles' hands, so he offers them money. He's giving them a bribe. Hey, how about if I pay you this much for you to give me that power? Simon doesn't have the Spirit. Probably wants the power to keep his followers. He's probably going to sell the power. He thinks the Spirit can be bought and sold. And what does Peter say? Verse 20, he tells him the truth. It doesn't do anyone any good to tell them lies. He tells them, may your silver perish with you. He's not a believer. He's perishing. You thought you could get God's gift with money. Simon craved power to do Spirit-powered things without the Spirit. Tells him the truth. He tells him, verse 21, you're, you're lost and you're on the way to hell. Your, your heart isn't right with God. He's telling him clearly. He tells him in verse 22, repent. He's calling him to repent. He's preaching repentance. He says, repent of your wickedness. Pray for forgiveness. In fact, there's doubt in there if it's possible for God to forgive you. Like, like there's a doubt that he would even repent. You should pray for forgiveness, he's telling them. That's, that's it. He was to repent and pray for forgiveness. His heart is fighting against what is good. His motives are evil. And, and Peter says you're in the gall of bitterness. Literally, you're bitterly opposed to the gospel. He says you're in the bond of iniquity. Basically, you're married to sin. Uh, this word is positively used of Christian peace and love, the bond that holds believers together. But here he is being held captive by his love for sin. And verse 24 pretty much lays it out for us. He doesn't get the personal nature of faith. So here's his answer. You pray for me. He had just been told, you need to repent, you need to pray. And he's like, can you do it? Now, one ancient text says that he wept the whole time Peter was talking to him. So here's Simon, the magician, the sorcerer, the Satan-inspired imposter, hanging out with the church. But he wasn't saved, and he never received the Spirit, and he thought God's power could be bought and sold because he confused God's power with occult superstition. See, those who worship Jesus are centered on, on, on God. They're, they're submitting their life to Jesus and they're serving others and they see God's glory as their highest purpose in life. If you're a believer, that's you. 
But occult practices are self-centered, submits only to self, focuses on temporary things and earthly success through formulas, and they see God as the means to get man's glory. Simon's shallow belief was the same as demons who believe and shudder. They know the truth and they know the judgment coming upon them because of the victory of Christ at the cross. Simon is unwilling to repent. He's focused only on escaping judgment. Pray that that won't happen to me. Verse 25 just tells us that when Peter and John had finished doing that, they spoke the word of God. They returned to Jerusalem. Went back to the church and on the way, they preached the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. They shared their testimony. They solemnly declared the truth about Jesus, how he had changed their life. Now let's say you're a believer who's just minding their own business, trying to glorify God and be a Christ-centered influence wherever he sends you. There are some obvious and not so obvious implications for you. First, let's talk about persecution. We know that scattering and ravaging the church leads to gospel growth. And the difficult, unwanted things in our lives are used by God to bring about great growth in Christ. But you need to know this. Persecution is not defeat. It's not God punishing you because you were bad. It's the result of living in a satanically influenced world around people who are opposed to the gospel, who are held captive by Satan to do his will, just like you were before you came to Christ. Throughout history, persecution jumpstarts gospel progress, and it's actually good. But here's what you shouldn't do. Don't go looking for persecution. Don't instigate it. You don't go looking for persecution. It finds you as you're doing what God calls you to do. Everyone who desires to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. It's not if it happens, but when it will happen in your life. So do what God calls you to do and trust God with everything. Let's talk about preaching. Everyday believers were scattered by persecution in order that they would reach Samaria for Christ. They didn't wake up one morning and say, you know, I want to go on a missions trip. I want to go to Samaria. I don't know how I'm going to tell my mom and dad, but uh, that's where I want to go. Hey, people, I want to go to Samaria. No, you're crazy. Don't go there. They'll kill you. Why'd they preach the gospel when they were scattered? To Samaria. They didn't ask to be scattered to Samaria. God allowed persecution to scatter them into the place they're supposed to go with the gospel. Why'd they preach the gospel when they were scattered? Well, because it was modeled well by their leaders. And because they were already doing that. Let's say you want to go on a missions trip. You're like, I want to go far, far away. Let me ask, my first question to you is, are you sharing your faith now? Are you sharing the gospel with people now? If not, you are not ready to go on a missions trip overseas. Preach the gospel in your neighborhood. Preach the gospel to your coworkers. Then let's talk about going far away. See, they were, they were hating Samaritans, didn't want to go to Samaritans, God opened their eyes and you've got ordinary everyday believers preaching the gospel with boldness in spite of cultural and geographical boundaries and they planted gospel seeds beyond Jerusalem. This is the church's first missionary effort. Let me give you some preaching and proclaiming and evangelism tips. There's three I want you to write down. Three, they're very simple but you need to do these things. Number one, if you want to preach the gospel, if you want to proclaim, you want to evangelize, talk to people just talk to people 
you know, be friendly and all that. And just, you know, hi, my name is Mike. What's yours? Ask them questions. I remember when I was in high school, I got a job at Miller's Outpost, and I was shy. I'm thinking, why did I get a job here? Because my manager says, you know, if you want to keep this job, you have to greet every person who walks in the door. And I wanted to keep the job. There were cute girls working there. So I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And so seriously, I, greeted, I got out of my shell by greeting every person who walked in the door. Talk to people. Greet them, meet them, help them, bless them. And number two, tell the truth. They spoke God's word, and they weren't just reciting Bible verses out into the air. They were incorporating the word of God into real conversations with people. Talk to people, tell the truth, and three, take any opportunity. Redeem the time, buy up every opportunity. Don't divorce faith from your life. You may have bought the lie that you must separate the gospel from your public life. The gospel was never meant to be hidden. Remember, get up on a big hill, don't cover up the light, all that stuff. You need to live with gospel purpose however God has called you, wherever God has called you. In other words, I want to tell you, live so that. What I mean by that is it's very easy for you and I to downplay major everyday opportunities. People say, I'm just raising kids. I'm just teaching school. I'm just balancing budgets. I'm just preparing taxes. I'm just serving food. I'm just keeping the streets safe. If you're a Christian, you've got to figure out the gospel reason why you do what you do. I'm raising kids so that what? I'm, raising, I'm balancing budgets so that what? I'm teaching school so that what? I'm preparing taxes so that what? I'm serving food so that what? I'm keeping the streets safe so that what? Is it for his glory and for Christ in scripture and for his sake and not yours? It ought to be. Find your gospel reason for doing what God has called you to do in life. You got to get to the place in your life where preaching the gospel in your life is seen as your primary activity. Like an Elvis movie. See, Elvis worked at a gas station, but he was always a musician who just happened to work at a gas station. Let's talk about reaching Jerusalem. Don't forget your Jerusalem. I want to go far away. Don't forget your Jerusalem, especially your Super 8. Do you know what your Super 8 is? It's where the most, most of your gospel work should be happening. The eight closest people that live around where you live, in your apartment, your condo, your house, wherever you live, the eight closest people, do you know their names? Have you talked to them? You got work to do. I do too. See, God wants you to love everybody he puts in your path. How do you, how do you remember your super eight? Three easy things. Prayer, care, and share. Pray for them, care for them, Share something with them. You know, eggs, butter, milk, the gospel. Bloom where God planted you. There's a reason you live on your block. Go beyond Jerusalem. Remember this. Acts, in the book of Acts, the the church was scattered to the nations. Today, the nations have already been sent to us. You can go to the nations if you want, but look down your street. The nations are here. In Acts, they were a very close-knit community. Today, we're already scattered geographically. We're already scattered like marbles. We scatter. A few minutes, we're going to leave. We're scattering back to our places. So be yourself and preach the word wherever God sends you. Be humble about it. You don't know everything. Be bold about it. People won't know what you're thinking or what you believe unless you tell them. Where has God allowed you to be scattered 
already. Serve him there. Preach the gospel there. Now let's talk as we close about real faith and pretending. Real faith and pretending. Why is it that repentance is such a big deal in the Christian life? Why should we preach repentance? It's because of this. Without repentance, there is no spiritual life. Without repentance in your life, you don't have life in Christ. Now, you think about the load of remorse that was on Saul, Paul's heart. He talks about it over and over again in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8 and 9 and 22 and 26, and in the epistles about what his life was like before he came to know Christ, before Jesus knocked him off his high horse, quite literally, as we'll see in chapter 9, and opened his eyes to the gospel truth, just like he did in your life if you're a believer. You think of the contrast between Saul, Paul, who's this murderous villain at first and turns into a chosen instrument of God and then Simon who won't repent, saying he's a Christian, hanging out with Christians. I was baptized. Let me, let me tell you this. Professing faith in Christ and getting baptized is only good if you truly know Jesus. It is very dangerous if you are perishing because it makes you think you're Okay. Just like people who want to give money to something thinking they're going to earn God's favor or, or get a place in heaven. Another thing, don't try to be somebody great. Make Jesus' name great. It's our Babel-like tendency to want to try to make a name for ourselves. So much of our energy is spent on image and reputation management. We should aspire to be faithful to Christ and when we leave a room, the aroma of Christ stays. You gotta remember too that there are satanically inspired people all around and even in the church. The wheat and the weeds, the true and the false. If you have the spirit, you will repent, but you must beware of imposters. Demon-possessed people still exist today. C.S. Lewis said this, Satan and his demons capitalize on the prevailing worldview of a culture. Which means that today, Satan is using first world materialism and greed and third world mysticism for his twisted evil purposes. Go to Ephesians 6, 10 through uh, 18 and read that and see what your marching orders are about that. But don't be naive. There are dangers everywhere. Seek counsel from the Lord and his word and from fellow believers, godly counsel. And, and, and if you're an imposter, beware because God's gonna track you down. I have no business at all calling anyone's salvation into question because it's between you and God. Only God knows those who are truly his. On the back of your sermon notes today, there's a page about home group questions that you're gonna discuss in your groups this week. And one of them is this. What is your salvation story? Have you professed your faith in Christ and be baptized as a believer? Is your faith real? How can you know it is important for you to make sure right now and then honestly talk to others about the state of their soul. You can't unless you know where you stand. It doesn't do anyone any good to tell them lies, to keep the truth from anyone. And the question right now at this very moment is not, is my friend saved or my relative saved? It is, am I saved? Is your profession of faith and baptism real? If not, make sure right now before you leave. And if so, go tell your friend about Jesus. Tell them to believe in Jesus and repent that they may be forgiven. We're gonna see that with Saul soon. I can't wait till we get there. God is in the business of turning enemies into sons and daughters by his mercy and grace. 
Jesus allows his church to be persecuted, scattered and ravaged, so that the gospel goes out to more and more people. Lord God, thank you that you bring about growth through the trials you send our way. As we open up our Bibles and we read in the New Testament, it seems like everything you wrote was written to suffering Christians. And we don't like pain, but we thank you for the growth you bring by it. Thank you for molding us and shaping us into more effective tools for you through pain. And Lord, may we not be surprised when we suffer. May we remember you, Lord Jesus, and have much joy in our hearts because you were at work in and through your witnesses for your purposes. May we praise the glory of your grace. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you let yourself be unmercifully scattered and ravaged so that we could be amazed at your mercy and grace. Thank you, Jesus, that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. And may we consider it joy when we encounter various trials, knowing it leads to growth and ultimately to glory. We pray in your name. Amen.